0: This is Hosted Transform Talks. Each week, powerful talks with leaders of transformation from around the world. I think it's really possible that people feel connected to one another and that maybe it's good for world peace. <laughs> Yay. Outside world doesn't need education that creates
1: the same all the time. It is in need of game changers to be able to adapt themselves to any kind of situation. All of us as human beings ultimately want to be creative and want to make a difference around us, achieve more of our potential.
0: With practical tips and new perspectives on leadership that helps us reinvent ourselves, individuals, organizations and societies... Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Hosted Transform Talks. My name is Jessica Tangelder, and in this episode I will talk with the global CEO whisperer Anthony Howard. He's the author of the book Humanize, Why Human-Centered Leadership is the Key to the 21st Century. A guide for those who want to apply moral leadership in business, government and society to change the world. In this talk we cover a lot of ground, Anthony gives us a sneak peek in his daily coaching work, being a coach and mentor of CEOs across the world, and how human-centered leadership will shape the leaders of tomorrow. What are the key abilities? What do you need to have as an ability, a skill, in order to unlock the potential of your work environment? We talk about certain power questions that he's using in his daily work in order to unlock the potential of CEOs to become an human-centered leader and how organizations are often structured in a way it alienates people from their life and soul and many more topics that we cover. I hope you enjoy this talk as much as I do and thanks for listening. So welcome Anthony. Thank you for for your time to join us on this podcast today about human-centered leadership. How are you and where do you call in from?
1: Hey, thanks, Jessica, for the time. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm calling in from a farm in uh, in the countryside in Australia. You know, summer here, whereas it's winter in your part of the world.
0: Beautiful, and um, yeah, it's it's very interesting because we have never met before, and now we're all <laughs> we're all doing this uh, great podcast together. And the reason that I got in touch with you is that uh, I was actually looking for human centered leadership tools and I was actually about to start my own website about that topic and then I saw it was taken that domain name (laughs) by a certain Anthony Howard. Uh, Some
1: guy in Australia.
0: Exactly some guy in Australia and I thought this is interesting so I wrote you an email like a few months ago who reacted very openly to get in touch and to have this podcast so I'm very grateful for that and you, you're, you're based in Victoria. Have you always been living there? Or is it something you, uh, you moved to uh, for, the, for the last couple
1: of years where, where I live now on a small property uh, mm-hmm. is very, very close geographically to where I grew up, although I spent my adult years um, in Sydney mm-hmm. and only moved back here three years ago, which is a whole other story. But, um, you know, I, I live, you know, a really wonderful life On a property in Country Victoria, outside of Melbourne, you know, with my wife and children who visit occasionally. And from here, I can, so this gives me a place to be grounded, to come back to from the, you know, the constant travel and work that I do and to be very grounded in in the work that we're doing. It's a great part of the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're, um, because you work, you also work globally. And uh, yeah, I can imagine that you need that quiet space to ground and to, uh, to reflect on things. And also to be your own leader, maybe.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So I'm actually curious if I, if I'm, if I can be so open to, to ask you, why do, what do you actually do and why do you do what you do? What is, what is your story behind that?
1: Wow, that's a really big question. So, so, so stop me if I talk too long. So as I said, I grew up in this part of the world. I grew up in a, a really loving, caring family. Um, one of six children and uh, in, a, in a small community of say 20,000 people so you know small rural community in a sense most people knew one another and cared for one another um, if there was a you know in, in Australia you get floods and fires and these sort of things and so the community would always come together to help and support one another so I, I grew up in this place where people cared for one another and the moment, literally, when I finished school, within a week of finishing school, I was on a plane to Japan and I joined the Merchant Navy. I joined a ship and on my first day on the ship, a brutal Scottish man, my boss, ran up behind me and kicked me viciously from behind and told me to, in a very thick Scottish accent, to get up to the forecastle head and have a look in the portside chain locker for a counter joining shackle. Now, I know that you're probably sitting there thinking, w- what did he say? And <laughs> yeah. that, that's exactly what I was thinking when this man, I could barely understand the accent. And, of course, even if I could, I had no, he could have been talking a foreign language. And he was using this as a way of manipulating me, of, of being a bully, you know, proving to me that I didn't understand. Now, I had just turned 17. I was, you know, on, on the other side of the world from my family, from this environment that I'd grown up in. I was pitched into a world of brutal men who would uh, drink all night and fight all day. Um, I'm being a little bit stereotypical, but that's what it was like to a, to a young man pitched into this. And so I, in a sense, had a seismic shift. You know, rather than my world slowly changing, you know, many of my friends left school and went to university, and they, so they maintained their social circles. They, they still, you know, spend time with their family, with the friends they went to school with. For me, that was broken and gone and mm-hmm. and so so similar to the analogy or the metaphor of, of the boiling frog i was chucked in the in the hot water in the boiling water and i thought wow that's this is not right mm-hmm. it was so stark to me that this is not the right way to treat people this was so outside my not just my comfort zone but my sense of reality mm-hmm. and so that experience had a powerful formative effect on on this idea that work is not a place that should not be a place of abuse, mm-hmm. should not be a place where we take advantage of people, you know, it should be a place where, where we frankly care for one another so we can get stuff done. Um, so I think I, I tried when I was at work and in the roles I had and still do to to genuinely care for people and to look after people because because I think, you know, the people who work for me, they're, Someone else's son or daughter, and, mm-hmm. and their mom or dad has sent them to work trusting that someone is going to look after them and not abuse them and not take advantage of them and, and not use them as a means to an end. So, yeah, and um, that that matters deeply to me. And that so that that form that was a powerful formative experience. So, that was uh,
0: like a typical uh, pivot moment for you to realize f- foremost that your family life is not average. That different things happen in different circles. And then you figured that, okay, this is something I'm not going to join or even even taking a step further,
1: I would love to change. Um, it's, you know, I, I can talk about it now fairly easily and because I've had many, many years to sort of reflect on it and, and process on it. You mm-hmm. know, as a 17-year-old, I didn't think what I've just described. You mm-hmm. know, it's only now when I look exactly. back on that and realize how, how profound It was. So there was not a moment where I said, I'm going to change this. Mm -hmm. There was, there there was just this niggling kind of thought that went, this, this is not right. This is, there's something wrong about this. And, and so there, there was that. And then because of the sort of family environment and the influence of, you know, good parents and, you know, I I always you know I did not always choose well, um, but I always cho- tried to choose well in a way that you know cared for people and 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 looked after people and and did my best for people. And so I think it just you know progressively once you once you set out on a trajectory, if you like, or a path, mm-hmm. you continue that kind of path unless you know something sways you from it. And fortunately, that was not the case. Yeah, that
0: helped you navigate to to stick on that path. Yeah.
1: Yeah um and so you know so i became a navigator that's what i was on on ships um oh. navigating ships. so um so i consider myself today still a navigator helping people and businesses figure out where they are where they're going how to get there in the best possible shape oh that's so
0: beautiful that's a nice way of connecting the dots <laughs> i yeah. love it yeah. and do you think uh maybe it's already kind of in that question but i uh but i think it's appropriate maybe to ask now do you think that Having coming from a good family, like you said, in a community where people care for one and the other, is kind of a condition for you to be an enabler of this environment. Or do you think, do you also have examples of people that maybe, yeah, were not as lucky as you were or are, and but were, are still capable of living the, the moral good life of, of yeah creating safety for one and
1: the other and taking care. Absolutely. There's, there's no doubt that there are many, many, many people who've grown up in very difficult circumstances who, who have built really noble lives. And so, so that, that's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. The, I, I have, a bit like yourself, I've interviewed a lot of people over the years and, and asked them about their formative influences. I've, I've asked people how they navigate moral dilemmas and then ask them where they got the the, the the values came from, and and I really have consistently heard people talk about their family. They they've said you know when we were children we'd sit around the table and Mum would say you know what 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 do you do here or what about this or they'd pick us up on something that we did and Dad would say well no we don't treat people like that, and so the, the, those things and same in my family were not necessarily done as okay Sunday night we're going to teach the children morals. But it's more a lifestyle, the way you live. And, you know, mum or dad takes you aside and says, you don't treat people like that. Yeah. You know, and, and, and of course, as a child, we go, well, we, well, well no, you do. And, and your mum says, well, no, you don't. You know, mm. and if you keep acting like that, you will find that people are not going to like you, kind of thing. And so, certainly in my life and in the lives of many people that I've spoken to, the, the family has been really formative um but as i said before people there are others there are people who grow up in very difficult circumstances who who become really good people
0: yeah and you wrote about them too right in your in your beautiful book uh about human centered leadership um I, ro- I read it myself uh, in the last month and it went uh, was very uh, was a very nice read and and also very helpful also very tangible and i really appreciate that in that book because as I also work in the field of, uh, of leadership development, it's often for people quite vague and what can we do with it and what do you mean? But you, you manage to write the book in a way that it's really framed by your own morals, most probably, and also what you have uh, seen and, and based on your data on your interviews with, with other executives. And with human-centered leadership, what, what do you exactly mean by that?
1: Yeah, so, so at, at a simplistic level, it means putting people first. But, but a, a lot of people put people first. I, I, I stumbled on this term uh, mm-hmm. when I was talking to people from the, um, from the design school at Stanford. And, and they were saying, and this is well known, of course, that they do human-centred design. Mm-hmm. And how when they're presented with a design problem, they start with the user. You know the person who is the yeah. user of the product that needs to be designed to say well you know how does the user use this and and then and, and i remember talking to them and going oh, that's what i'm talking about human-centered leadership not just mm-hmm. not human-centered design but human-centered leadership and so, so who are the people that are impacted by my leadership who are the people that that i touch in, in some sort of way and and what is the impact that I have on those on those people, we, we can go into that in more detail. But that was the sort of um, genesis to the term human centered leadership, because prior to that, I'd been writing a lot about moral leadership, and and this came from a reflection on um, Nelson Mandela in particular, but but some others, and writing on this, on this idea of moral leadership, and if I could say, because that came about through the interviews I heard people i interviewed um lamenting a lack of leadership in the world i asked them what kind of leadership they would often say moral leadership and 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 when i asked them to describe that they would often point to a mandela or a figure like that as a moral leader um, but but the the term moral leadership has you know particular overtones for for a lot of people and, and so when the design school we're talking about design human-centered design human-centered leadership we need. It's leadership that puts the human person at the center of all we do.
0: I would love to switch, shift a little bit towards, and I'm sure you've heard of it, uh, systemic leadership. Mm-hmm. There's all new terminologies popping up, but I do think there's a distinction between uh, human-centered leadership and systemic leadership in terms of they overlap and they support one and the other, but the focus is maybe a bit different. And here I quote uh, a part of your book. uh, Deep global linkages between people, organizations and nations now mean that our world can change overnight because of its ripple effect of major events, even one which starts quite small. And for the listeners that are not really clear about what systemic leadership is, for me, it's about connecting the different levels uh, in which you operate or you have impact on and your stakeholders as well. Uh, so that's, this is the individual level, organizational levels, and societal level. And when I connected that, something think back about the thesis that I wrote in uh, 2004 for sociology. It was about pro-social behavior between countries and how those values uh, were different and why people would be act according to the pro-social behavior norm and other, other countries would less. And there were some yeah determinant factors uh valuables that that would give you the answer, so for example the the amount of welfare state or the the cultural values that a, that the a country had post uh modern values that they would carry um the way that their government uh, government is arranged all had influence on on whether people would act pro social or or less pro social yep. here you are. <laughs> very concrete topic about, you know, do you, do you open a door for someone that you don't know and has a broken leg, for example, and then you translate it to a very more abstract meta level about governments and how society is wired and values, and, and this, this can be very confusing for people sometimes, like, okay, what do you mean? Can you make it more concrete? And my mentor back then uh, already mentioned that, uh, yeah, that I'm applying the chaos theory and uh, that this is a butterfly effect that I'm focusing on, etc. So uh, back to, to to the point is, do you focus on systemic leadership as well? I think so, because this quote is already uh, pointing it out, I guess. And how do you keep it digestible for people to know what you're talking about and and where to focus on because they're all different topics different contexts, and in the end we all should become systemic thinkers but there's all so so much your brain can process and so much you can reflect upon you know you cannot always shift in, in level of reflection reflecting on myself and then on my environment and then on how the government is acting and then How do you digest that yourself and also how do you deal with that with your clients?
1: Um, I think one of the things that I was referring to in this, the quote that you mentioned, was this globally connected world. And so when I was a boy, as I said, growing up in a small rural environment, I loved to read. And so I would go to school and often after school, I would go to the library. A physical location and so the library for me was a source of wonder you know there was this, this was my window if you like into the world you know I could read books about other countries and and, and stories about other countries now we had, we had television so you can see it on television as well but for me the, the word the written word was a powerful um, mediator of that to me so I could be reading it about an event that had happened you know relatively recently historically, and it might only be now as a child now trickling through into my world so so because we weren 't so connected, you know Australia of course is you know one of the most remote countries in the yeah. world. World change happened slowly in a little town that I grew up in, but now you know um, when someone didn 't pay their mortgage in Florida before long, there was a global meltdown of the global financial system, you know, and then local towns in Australia who had invested money in bonds mortgage bonds suddenly lost millions of dollars so suddenly the tennis court that was going to be built for the local children didn't happen you know and and so so we live in this world now where events that are completely removed from us can change my world tomorrow not not next year or not in 10 years time but but tomorrow and so the the connectivity that exists in the world today um, means that I am, we all, we are all global citizens. That's a very different kind of world from the world that I grew up in, and so um, we we need to be able to think in um, in, in system kind of thinking and in, in very complex kind kind of terms. And and this this kind of thinking was the sort of thing that really only I'm being a bit simplistic. Prime Minister, or a president, or a global, you know, the leader of a national organization, or national CEO, needed to be able to think in, you know, globally systemic terms. But now everybody does. Now everybody has to understand that, you know, this this apple that I'm buying in the local supermarket actually came from Europe, for argument's sake, or the blueberries came from Chile, or what? What does all that mean, you know? Um, and likewise, you know, we're exporting products to the rest of the world, and so this this connected kind of world and and then you're adding the the technology the digital footprint leading in this world and operating in this world it's it's created this always on kind of society so the level of resilience you need in that is really quite amazing final comment you need a thought process for coping with it and so uh, and i talk about this about this in the book when i'm talking about thinking processes you need a way of unpacking information What tends to happen because the deluge of information is we shift from information to action, information, action, information, action, rather than information to making sense of information, hypothesising about the information, saying, what, what does that mean? And forming a judgment saying, well, yes, that is what it means, and then acting. So we're cutting out two vital steps. And because we're then moving from information to action, we then are reactionary which then actually accelerates things even further. And if you're in a doom loop, it can accelerate the doom loop. So better thinking is a crucial need for the 21st century, better human thinking, not machine thinking. Mm-hmm. Don't know if I answered your question, Jessica, but that's... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, huh? Yeah, no, you definitely did. Uh, I, I learned so much about about your stories and, and your, old, your expertise and your experiences. Thanks for that. Also, that made me realize we're all global citizens, that also comes with a responsibility to become systemic thinkers. Like you said, beautifully, uh, you eat an apple from the store, where is it coming from, you know, who is involved in this process? I used to think, okay, the supermarket has overthought this for me, but now you vary as an individual. You can make choices that can have um, consequences. for a lot of your, your,
1: your choices do have consequences. So, for example, one of the things that I'm thinking about at the moment is um, I, like many people, use TripAdvisor to make choices about the hotels that I stay in. But do I know if the staff who work in that hotel are being fairly paid? You know, I I would frankly be horrified to find out that I was spending money to a hotel chain or group or individual hotel and and they were taking advantage of their workers. Now, I'm not sure necessarily how how I can address that, but that's the thing that I've been thinking about a lot that we, we have to be very conscious that things might look right on the surface, but, but this, this individual working here, they may in fact be virtually slave labour from another country and being taken advantage of in some sort of way. That's, that's, that's quite likely. And so we have to be very careful about the way we... This goes back to my whole thesis. How are we treating human beings?
0: yeah and also the different dimensions right um i mean if you look at all the the trade the fair trade certificate labels Mm. and all that you know i can buy a banana that is in in terrible plastic but it's organic or i can buy a non-organic banana that does not carry a plastic which is uh, better for the co2 uh, reduction and then there's a banana that doesn't carry (laughs) plastic is (laughs) organic but You know, what's done by people uh, treated horribly. So there's there's different dimensions that you want to have everything perfect on all the aspects.
1: Yeah, and I think we have to be balanced. You know, we can't solve all the problems. And and so I'm not sitting here saying, gee, you know, we should have a perfect world. That's, I'm I'm not unrealistic. Mm -hmm. But I I think we do have to have a level of questions. that Just by asking the question, then having a level of awareness, um, that's a good place for someone to start. And and then the second thing is not to become an evangelist about it and say everybody should be like I am. That's, you know, that's one fast way to alienate yourself. But I think then we we set an example, and this is why, you know, the Mandela's, the Martin Luther King's, the Gandhi's, the Mother Teresa's that I had in the cover of my book, they set an example for others. They said, hey, here's a way to live your life, and you can choose or not. You know, I'm not saying you have to live your life like this, but they serve as models or examples to us of a way to live a life. I would like to do a
0: a little deep dive in your book. Um, And I wrote down some um, parts of it, some quotes. And one of them was, uh, one of the chapters starts with, I left corporate America because of the sense of alienation it created in my life and soul. And this really resonated with me because I have so many participants in my group that join often it's a multinational firm that are really scared, or they just left the firm, or they had a burnout. And they really resonate with this sentence, I'm sure. And the beautiful thing of it, of it is that they want to contribute to turn that culture around. So I think that's a nice insight when people feel, okay, I don't fit in. And, and I don't think it's healthy, like, yeah, like the insight you had yeah. when you were 17 at the Marine. Um, so how can we change things? And I was wondering, is is this a rare case? Um, I forgot the lady's name that you were talking about about the case that she uh, left the toxic environment she was working in um, in order to uh, to have uh, a yeah. happy life. Was this a rare case, or do you, you know, do you do you hear these kind of stories on an average base? And and do you think there's a lot of work to do still, or what is your what is your experience with that?
1: Yes, I think there is a lot of work to do, and it will ne- it will never end, in mm. in the sense that you know we 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 cannot um, give up on this one. The corporation is fundamentally opposed to what it means to be human, and and I don't mean that in any you know dystopic kind of sense, but a a business an, an organization is an entity you know structurally designed to generate profit to you know to use resources to generate some sort of outcome for its, its stakeholders its shareholders primarily i'm uh, being a little bit simplistic but everything inside an organization is a resource you know so you have you, you know in simple terms you have say buildings and and infrastructure and but you also have people we have human resources we have this this terrible idea that you know people are our greatest asset mm-hmm. so what we actually think of people in in, in not, not in terms of you know anthony or jessica or mary or jane we think of people in terms of that function that role that output that outcome you know now i know that, that there are people and who, who, organizations that are not like this but mm-hmm. the observation that i'm making is that an organization by design treats people as resources so you, you have to act, actively work against that in other words, if you go to work and just assume that the organisation is going to treat you really wonderfully and, you know, deliver you meaning and purpose and care for you as an individual, well, you, you could be sadly mistaken. You know, you're going to have to choose wisely that your board or your boss or your, the person you report to genuinely cares for you as a person because the organisation won't. Mm-hmm. You know, the organisation will say, we're out of money, you're gone. So, so an organisation by nature can very easily become toxic. Yeah. And if you put in that organisation people who are only driven by greed and self-interest, there's a few of those in the world, the organisation can become a, a brutal kind of environment. Yeah. And so this is one of my big concerns in the 21st century. We need men and women at every level in organisation and society who will say, no, it stops with me. I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm, I'm going to stand up for um, myself as a person and for other people as, as as persons in their in their dignity and and what it means to be a person.
0: Yeah, I, re- I remember that one of my participants exactly said what you you were saying now, and and she said, "Okay, um, I want to change this culture around. Of course, I cannot do it by myself, but the tendency that she she sees in her organization is that people." perhaps like you and me, to generalize a little bit, they will leave the firm because they cannot start that by themselves. And the structure is so dominant that often the the more lighthearted people they leave and yeah, the the culture gets only more toxicated. Like the lady... Mm. Story is also leaving that firm so I can imagine that she could have made a change maybe but she rather prefers a different organizational culture to work for to be in than change things around so having said that yes, you,
1: you cannot you cannot change organization from below um so so in other words it, mm-hmm. it has to be you know, the, the the ceo has to be deeply committed to, say, in this case, human-centred leadership or caring for people. You know, what, whatever the CEO is committed to in terms of, you know, how they're going to get stuff done and how they're going to treat people, mm-hmm. that will cascade through the whole organisation without a doubt. And so, you know, if you join an organisation where people are treated as machines or people are treated as, you know, units of economic production, um, you will not be able to change that unless until you become the CEO
0: how do you work with that when your client for example or potential client CEO person might be interested in what you do but he says like yeah it all sounds beautiful but you know the wealth part for us to create more revenue is very important and shareholders etc so I do not have the time to change this whole culture around and then see the benefit within maybe five years from now so how do you deal with that? paradox of, uh, yeah, short-term, lo- long-term impacts?
1: I think the reality is most business leaders, and certainly the ones within whom I work, are in it for the long term. There's no doubt they have a conflict between the long term and the short term because they have to balance the competing interests of, you know, a wide range of stakeholders. So, you know, no matter how much they might be trying to build a legacy for argument's say, you know, they might, they've got to keep companies sustainable today. The, the great leaders, so Paul Polman might be one as an example, Unilever, in essence say to people who are looking for short-term returns, don't invest in our company. You know, we are in this for the long haul, so there'll be some ups and downs along the way, but we, we, will, we believe we'll do well over the long term. If you're after a short-term result, well, maybe you should invest somewhere else. Uh-huh. The, um, I think something to bear in mind is that um, we, we can only get results through people. You know, if everyone doesn't turn up to work tomorrow, the business doesn't work, you know? And (laughs) and so I think it's a bit of a self-evident that if we treat people really badly, they're probably not going to come to work. And if they don't come to work, we're probably going to fail as a business. And And so the other extreme, if we treat people really well, they're probably going to come to work and not just enjoy working, but do their best work. And it's fair to assume if people do our best work, our customers are going to be really well-treated. And they will probably tell other customers. And they'll be happy to pay for our products and services. And then we'll have a sustainable company. And so so it seems to me self-evident that caring for people builds profitable, sustainable organizations. And, and I think that balances the short-term and the long-term.
0: Do you also think that it's a good idea then to change the, co- the, the organizational structure in the sense that its employees could be uh, shareholders, so they will get a margin of the revenue, so to speak, or the profit. Uh, yeah, and
1: they so I.
0: A concrete outcome.
1: Yeah, I love the um, John Lewis model in the UK, where a percentage of the profit is um, distributed among everybody equally. So, so, in a very simple sense, they, they agree each year how much of the profit will be distributed to staff. So, let's say it's. Um, I think it usually averages around twelve or thirteen percent, but it but it varies. And so, if that figure, for argument's sake, is ten million pounds, then and, and if the total wage bill, you know, is hundred million pounds, then everybody will get a ten percent bonus. You know, so the bonus paid to the CEO is the same percentage bonus paid to, you know, the casual university student who just comes in and works on Saturday morning. So, so I think that's a really equitable way of, of everybody sharing equally in the, the upside of, of the organisation. And they, so they call everybody, I think they call them associates in the John Lewis model. Um, I think there's a lot of merit in those kind of models rather than models that, that say, you know, the, the elite in the organisation get telephone book number bonuses. And I think that's really wrong.
0: Nice, beautiful, uh, beautiful incentive like that too. However, if, if, if that would not... Do you also think it's possible when there's no monetary incentive?
1: Um, I, yes. So, so I'm not advocating. By the way, we need a monetary incentive to work. Mm-hmm. Um, the research has proven, you know, over and over and over, that um, the thing that motivates people more than anything else at work is recognition. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's um, you know, it's Mary coming down from the head office and saying to you know John, who's working on a front desk, you know. Um, just heard it was your birthday today or heard you're doing a great job or just something that recognises you as a human person. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that goes a long way. You know, people go home and tell their parents, gee, you know, mum, the, the boss came, came in today and said, I oh, was doing a great job. How good is this? Having said that, we need to pay people a fair way. So I don't want to undermine that, but it's, but it's well proven that um, we don't need to pay people astronomical amounts of money to get their best service. We actually need to recognise them
0: yeah yeah I, I totally agree. I think this recognition bit is is, is very something we inhibit in all of us <laughs> uh, very deeply. I can also see it with participants in in teams or in groups that I train or coach um, if you give them the space, if you give them the floor and not in a paternalistic way because I'm a super curious person, so I always want to know who, who are they and how do they think and what they. What would they love to contribute because you know I'm not the person that knows everything of course and it's so nice to see when you simply give them the floor and you know the content doesn't per se matter so much what they say it's just about the recognition that they get the space to yeah the freedom to contribute the freedom to speak up or to share their minds or to share their doubts or their fears and if you can yeah create this open environment um, yeah, there's so much uh, much you can achieve t- together.
1: Absolutely. There was a story told years ago, that, and I don't know if this is true, um, but of airlines recruiting flight attendants. Mm-hmm. And so, so one of the things that they would get them to do in the interview process, and so they'd be interviewing, let's say, 100 people at a time, putting them through a process. And so Anthony would be asked to give a talk to the group, and it might be a five-minute talk on you know, my life story. And, and so, and everybody had to give the talk one at a time. And so what, what the airline was doing, however, was not saying how good is Anthony at giving a talk because you know, that you, the assumption would be they want to know if I can communicate and I want to know if I can, you know, express myself clearly. What they were actually doing while the person was talking was filming the audience. And Because they were looking for people in the audience who leaned forward and smiled and made eye contact with the person talking to give them recognition and encourage. Because, it, as you know, when, a lot of people, when they're listening to talk, they sit back, they, they get on their smartphone, they doodle with a pen. And so the airline was recognizing that we need people who recognize and encourage others. And you see it in those kinds of environments. You see it when you're doing small group work. You see that the people who are watching the person who's way out on a limb because they're doing some sort of risky exercise that they're out of their comfort zone, and and some people sort of smiling almost in a mocking way. Others are smiling at them, going, "You can do this." You know, they're mm-hmm. giving them giving them encouragement. You know, those are people who are demonstrating leadership right in that moment. You know, they're they're, they're giving encouragement and support to people.
0: Yeah, that's that's such a beautiful example. Thanks for that. I was really triggered about, you know, what we already mentioned and shared that the power of questions shouldn't be underestimated. And I almost feel kind of, well, guilty is not the right word, but it's not so difficult sometimes to coach people. If you you have a feel, if you're really curious and if you're really with this person, so you listen and then know to pose question after question, which makes sense for them to unlock, yeah, maybe even their subconscious. And, and the patterns that maybe are not always so constructive in order to, to change things around and create new routines maybe even and to yeah. master new skills to, uh, to uh, overwin that. So what do you have particular questions that always work or you love to ask or any, any, any of that?
1: The, the answer is probably yes. And, and can I rattle them off now? The answer is no. And that's probably because in the moment, you know, someone will be talking about something. I will know the question to ask because I've, you know, like anyone doing a role, you just know the kind of question or, or what needs to be said in a, in a given moment. I think if I can maybe answer it from a slightly different perspective and, and that, that is that, you know, when I'm listening to someone, I, 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 someone taught me years ago, listen from your gut, not your head. And so most people in a conversation are listening for a break in the conversation so that they can get in and say their bit. So, so I don't listen for that. I'm not waiting for you, the client. I'm not waiting for you to talk, stop talking so that I can say something. I'm waiting for you to stop talking so that you're now ready to listen. So yeah. some people talk and then they'll go silent. And that silence is not an invitation for me to speak. That silence is them now thinking at another level. Yeah. And so I need to give them that silence and give them that permission to think at another level. And then you can see something cross, come across their face where they maybe change focus or shake their head, or and then if they don't speak at that point, I might ask a question like, "What, what was going on? What was, what were you thinking or feeling just now?" And like one hundred percent of the time, there'll be another insight. Like, "Look, yeah, I was talking about the issue with the board, and then suddenly I started thinking about the conversation I had with my wife last night, or something like that. What's going on there? Let's let's talk about that." Yeah. Um, so, so the observation in that is that when you listen at a different level, questions will emerge, and then it's having the courage to ask the question. And so sometimes <laughs> I'll say, um, this might sound like a dumb question, um, but you know, this or this this might be really obvious to you, but it's not to me. And, and ask them the, the question. And sometimes to be able to say, look, you know, I think if you were talking to another banker, they would understand exactly what you meant, but I don't because I'm not a banker. Can you explain that to me again? And so sometimes even those kinds of questions force people to another kind of thinking because they're caught up in their world, their jargon, their their perspective. Um, so trying to bring in new perspectives and using questions to bring in a kind of perspectives, um, that, that's one way. Another question that often works well is people will talk about, you, yeah, I'm doing this and this and this. And, and so um, how's that working out for you? And they'll look at you and go, yeah, it's not really, is it, you know? So if you continue acting the way you're acting and continue doing what you're doing, where, where are you going to end up? Well, you know, I'm probably going to up divorced, overweight, maybe ill health, you know, if, if I'm realistic. So what are we going to do about that? Yeah. You know, there can be any number of questions that you can ask that, um, and that can be equally about the business and strategy that you have to be. Yeah, you know, so so in my field a question that I ask a lot is um so when I'm meeting someone for the first time, what what you're about, the purpose of the business. Okay, so what's your strategy? Now quick outline and what are the values of the organization? Quick outline. And I'm not doing that by the way from a point of view, I should have read the website. I'm doing that from a point of view of I want to hear their language. I want to hear the way they talk about their business and the way they talk about the values, the way they articulate these kind of things. And, and then I'll say, and so what's your leadership strategy for achieving that? 99% of people look at me as if to say, what you, sorry, what, what do you mean leadership strategy? Well, my assumption is that you're going to get things done through people. My assumption is that this strategy you've got, you're going to rely on people to do. Well, yeah. Okay, so if you're the leader, what's your strategy for getting things done through people? You know, I can count on one hand the number of organisations who can easily articulate their leadership strategy, A, and an even smaller group who then have a very, very, very clear methodology for teaching that and cascading that through the organisation. And that means that most people operate with a default model of leadership. And what that means is that's usually command and control. You know, when we're under pressure, it's usually a command and control model of leadership because we've never thought in advance, how do we get things done through people? So a little bit of a tangent there, Jessica, from your question about questions, but that's a question I ask a lot. What is your leadership strategy?
0: Beautiful. No, I love it. It's very interesting not to worry about uh, the length of, of answers <laughs> it's uh it's It's great uh content, and I totally resonate with that. Thank you so much I have one final question. I think it's so interesting uh we could continue live for another few hours so if I would love to 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 summarize it a little bit in in the sense that by posing the question to you well what are the top five challenges? for human-centered leadership for your clients to, to integrate. So what are the things that they stumble upon or they might find mo- most difficult to change or to integrate? And this could be things that we already covered, but to give a little bit of a, yeah, like a summary for people to to recap what we just discussed. What are the five um, things maybe that are
1: most challenging, if you can if, if it's possible right, to sum them up? So the answer is it's not possible to sum them up, but but I, <laughs> if I could I'll approach it from a slightly different perspective. If if I look at what are the components of human centered leadership and then this can highlight where the challenges lie. So so the the first component of human centered leadership is being self aware, mm-hmm. knowing who I am. And so self-awareness for a lot of people is saying, well, you know, these are my strengths and weaknesses kind of thing. But self-awareness really is who is Anthony? Why am I on this planet? What is is mine to do? What is my mission and purpose? Um, That's what self-awareness is. And then how am I going to bring that to work? You know, it plays out in that. And the second component of human-centered leadership is, is moral competence. And, and moral competence is not an ability to know the difference between good and bad. Moral competence is an ability to, to live a virtuous life, a life of courage, a life of justice, a life of goodness, you know, a life of care and compassion. And, um, that's, that's a lifelong, lifelong work to do that. The third component is, is as I mentioned earlier, um, thinking competence, the ability to choose wisely. The ability to be able to filter through vast amounts of data and information and develop wisdom from that, to be able to shine the light of truth into any domain in which we operate. The fourth component is relational awareness. So, you know, I I I, I exist in a relationship with another, you know. I I only exist because of a relationship. You know, I was brought into being because of a relationship. And so to recognize that. Leadership is fundamentally a relationship between two or more persons. And then the next component of human-centered leadership is having a view on what it means to be a person. Is a person a means of an outcome for me, a unit of economic production? Or is a person someone who is unique and, and unrepeatable and irreplaceable, you know, who has dignity and is worthy of respect in their own right? A person is never a means to an end. That's the simple way of, yeah. of putting putting that so so if you look at those and say well these are the components of human-centered leadership then what are the challenges that you might face in a work or social context to be that kind of person um where do you get the time where do you make time to reflect where do you make time to think about your decisions to think about your moral actions to think about your purpose you know do you take time to write say in a journal i a second, reflect on you know, what's going on with your life, reflect on the decisions you made. So so we live in a world where it's very, very hard to make time for, for, for your own reflection, your own learning, um, and, and development. We live in a noisy world where you are always on, whether you're always on with technology or always on in meetings or, or you, know, you suffer the demands of a demanding you know, schedule. So being able to break that kind of kind of nexus is one of the big challenges to um, being a human center leader, when I talk about relational competence um, or relational awareness, this really only comes from me spending time with you. And this, this is, so this is time. So, in a busy workplace, you know, to say, look, let's let's catch up for a coffee. I, I'd like to get to know you, kind of thing. Um, I, I had a group of client, uh, client where he said, look, I've put together a new team, and we want to. Um, look at our strategy and where we're going and can you run, you know, an offsite for us? <laughs> so I said, sure. And uh, I said, what I think we need to do first is get to know one another. And he said, I agree. And it was really a complete new team. All, all eight of them were completely new. I said, so my view is that we cannot do anything on strategy until we get to know one another. He said, yep. And so he trusted me with this thing. And so I started day one, said, okay, we're going to start first getting to know one another. And someone said, we need to talk about X. I said, okay, let's write this up, X, you know, so issues we have to get to. First of all, we're going to get to know one another. And so anyone can go first. What I'd like you to do is tell us your story. Who are you? Where Where did you come from? How did you end up here? Take, take as long as you like. It doesn't matter. And so the first person spoke really eloquently and, and lovely. And, and then I said, and Now I'd like you to go to the table and, and tell Mary what you heard her say. Tell her what you just heard about her that you didn't know before. And so there was this lovely outpouring of, I didn't know you had to overcome that. I didn't know you had that capability. I didn't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when we'd done that with eight people, the, the, the strength of that relationship, by the way, that took <laughs> nearly two days. Yeah, yeah, um, it's a long process. <laughs> I yeah, but it, but it was so lovely. And then yeah. at the end of two days, I said, hey, we still need to get to these big strategic issues. By then, some of the strategic issues had fallen away where they are going, hey, that doesn't matter because now that I know Mary, I don't, we don't need to have the conversation because I trust her to take care of it. Exactly. And they were, they were able to say, now, there's a couple of things we do need to talk about. It. They had a really significant issue. They put it up and they said, here's the issue. And it was so obvious that one of the women there had profound insight from her life story that the moment she spoke and said, this is what I think we, we should do, there was not, not going to be a debate. No one had a need to say, hey, well, I haven't been heard. So we respected her because she knew all about this. If we hadn't done all that conversation, mm-hmm. they could have spoken for two days about that issue. You know what I mean? And so my short answer my long answer to your short question is time we yeah. need time to reflect we need time with people to become the kind of people and build the kind of organizations we need
0: i think there's there's one more quote i i wrote down it's uh written by you of course in your book uh human-centered leadership uh humanize i'm in a relationship therefore i am and a person is a person through other people uh, yes i think that's very beautiful yeah so I want to, uh, I would love to uh, wrap it up. Thank you so much, um, Anthony, for your time. We covered so many topics and I'm sure people will love it. And uh, they will digest and uh, hopefully also respond to it because I want an engaging, ongoing conversation. So I hope we stay in touch and uh, we're connected Indeed. now for sure. And I love your work and I would love to hear more about uh, what's up next and, and more case studies about what works and maybe what doesn't work, how things are going with you.
1: Indeed, and I look forward to further conversation. Thank you, Jessica. Thank
0: you. Just like to remind you, as always, you can find show notes, links to resources, and all sorts of things we talked about at hostertransform.com forward slash podcast. Also do engage in our ongoing conversation by leaving a comment and share your thoughts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, a final note before you take off. Did you hear about the Weekly Wisdom? It's a short email I sent out just before the weekend. It provides you of hands-on and mindful next-level leadership practices that empowers you to unlock transformation in our fast-changing world. With ease and a soul of fun, you can help people to gain clarity in their future. You can subscribe via hosetransform.com, I will spell it out for you h-o-s-t-o-t-r-a-m-s-f-o-r-m dot com and you will receive the very next one and when you sign up I hope you enjoy it